Well, hey, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City, and I just want to welcome you here on this uh, Sunday morning, whether you're joining with us here uh, in person or you're joining with us online. Um, uh, I know that there's a few people actually who are, are, one of our community groups actually at Red City is all camping this weekend. So I don't know if you guys are uh, sitting outside right now watching together on service. If you are, I just wanted to say hey to you uh, as well. Um, so what I want to do this morning is I actually want to read our passage. Um, we are in a uh, sermon series on the book of Philippians. We have been for the last few weeks. It's going to take up uh, pretty much the summer uh, here. We are in uh, chapter 2 of Philippians now. I want to read the passage for us. We'll pray. And then what, what we'll do is what we do every single Sunday here at Rest City is we want to really break down and live into the implications of what uh, Scripture is telling us. We think the Word of God has been given to us to edify us, to, to teach us, to help us to grow, to, to help us to learn to think in a way that glorifies and honors God. Um, and so we do this every single Sunday where we spend some time uh, hearing from God's Word and then living within it. And we really desire to take that out from here each week. That's why we have community groups that walk through uh, what we talk, the same passage that we talk about on Sundays as well. So um, that's our goal for today, and I just want to thank you for being with us this morning as we do that and all the other things we do on a Sunday morning, whether it's uh, worship or uh, prayer or just keep gathering together in community. So here's the passage, uh, Philippians 2, verses 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service uh, coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to gather together this beautiful Sunday morning um, in worship, in community. Um, and coming together to, uh, to learn and to, to grow deeper in our understanding and knowledge of what it means to follow you well uh, in the world that we live in, God. Give us wisdom and bring us back to Jesus, as always, as we do it this Sunday morning. In his name we pray, amen. So I don't know if you have been thinking about this a lot more often like I have, but the last year I've started to really think a lot more about my posture um, and specifically, it's because for like a year and a half, every single day from like nine to five, and then a lot of nights as well, I was spending my time hunched over a laptop, right? Or maybe looking at my phone. Um, and I've started to notice that I've started to have some neck and back pain that's kind of come with it. And, I, and I, I've never really, you know, experienced that. And part of it's just I'm getting older, I, I suppose. But I think part of it is that so much of my time was spent, uh, you know, using a laptop. And, and maybe that's, that, that's been your experience the last year and a half as well, as we've been kind of living throughout this pandemic and spending all of our time working from home. Um, and I, I, so, so I've kind of been like asking myself, how can I have better posture as I sit here all day? And I, I realized that I, I definitely look like the incorrect uh, version on here far more often uh, than I would care to admit. Um, and so I've tried to think about like, am I sitting in a correct way um, and, and making sure that 
I am not having incorrect posture. Because it's not just, apparently, it's not just, um, uh, you, know, you know, like later that day you might feel a little bit uh, uncomfortable. But actually, apparently there's other longer-term effects you can have um, from bad posture. Um, aside from neck and back pain, uh, apparently heartburn and bowel issues can come from it as well. So just something to think about maybe as you are spending a lot of time around a computer. And I think, you know, you know, I've been learning that posture really does matter. Um, it, it, does, it does make a difference. Um, because if you don't really have a plan on your posture, you're going to start to, you know, find issues bubbling up. Some short-term, easily correctable. Some long-term, some things that you might have to deal with and do a lot of work to sort of undo the, the problems of. And so it can kind of, you know, form your body and, and in a lot of ways. It also communicates something to other people, right? Y- your posture communicates something to them, right? If you are kind of, you know, slouched in your chair when you're hanging out with somebody, you know, that communicates you're not really that interested in what they have to say, maybe. But if you're, like, leaned in, right, if you're, you're, you're sitting at attention, you're leaned in, like, that makes them feel like, uh, you know, you, know you, you care what, what they have to say, right? So, so little things like that posture really has a lot of effects um, in, in different ways in our lives. I think that posture language is helpful for us to think about as we ask ourselves as Christians, how are we going to uh, approach the world around us as well? And Andy Crouch, he's a Christian thinker and writer. He actually uh, kind of uses the idea of posture to describe uh, um, how Christians should think about the world in relation uh, around them. So whether that's, you know, living with coworkers or neighbors or just other people that are in our social spheres who might believe and live differently than us, um, whether it's interacting with cultural products that we might uh, take in, TV, movies, music, books, etc. And I'm going to guess you took in a lot more of that in the last year and a half than you have in your life uh, before now, right? Like, uh, we are definitely taking in uh, products that the culture produces on a regular basis. Could be on politics, which, you know, has a lot to do with culture, right? So how we posture ourselves uh, around that. Uh, it, could, it could be around research or science and how we think about different things that come to us that are not necessarily coming to us from the worldview of a, of, a, of a Christian mindset, but still probably have some impact on how we should live in the world, right? These are all things that we do that are lived in, right? And we can't just talk about them. We have to think about how we're posturing ourselves towards them. And so I think that language of posture is, is super helpful. And just like posture is really uh, helpful for your body to be thinking through, Posture for the church and then for us as Christians is also really important because it's going to help us to, uh, you know, it's going to determine whether or not we have a positive or negative impact on ourselves and on people around us, okay? So anyway, I, I think it's helpful for us to think about our posture. And last week, we talked about the Apostle Paul and what he has to say through this idea of the Christ hymn and how, you know, we live as a community in a very inward facing way. But this week, Paul kind of shifts his focus towards an outward-facing approach uh, to life in the world, Um, and I think he does it by giving us a certain posture to adopt. And I'm going to call that a posture of welcome today, a posture of welcome towards uh, those around us that is fueled by the power of Christ and then follows his model, some of the stuff we talked about uh, last Sunday. So anyway, let's dig into this a little bit more. Let's ask ourselves a little bit, uh, what does Paul have to say for us as we think about how we want to posture ourselves to the world around us? Okay, so let's get back into the passage, Philippians two twelve to 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So let's actually just start in verse 12 with that phrase, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I know this is, this is one that uh, if you've come across it before, d- depending especially on like, maybe the, the, the tribe or tradition of Christianity that you've grown up in, this is a very confusing verse to ask, you know, what is Paul getting at here? Now, I, I think it's really clear just from the context that Paul is not talking about achieving this salvation through hard work or sort of reverent, pious deeds. This is not what he's talking about here. Um, uh, or, you know, with a fear, you know, fear and trembling that God is going to crush me if I don't get this right. I'm constantly to be working to sort of achieve the standing before God that keeps me from, uh, from, from, from going there. Now, clearly, Paul doesn't mean that just in context of his own letter, because in a couple of different places, he specifically talks about how what's going on in our lives in regards to God is fueled by God specifically. So, look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you to accomplish his good purpose. Okay? Uh, in verse 6, we did a whole sermon on this at our baptism service. God started a good work in us, and Paul is confident that it will be brought uh, through to completion. That's his sort of confidence that he has for the Philippians. So what Paul is saying here is that he wants them to work out what it means to live their salvation out in the present time. And fear and trembling means an awe or a reverence for what is going on in our midst as God does work to accomplish his good purpose. Okay, we're not casual about the fact that God is doing something in our midst. We have a fear and a, and a, and a reverence and an awe around that, knowing that it is God who works in our midst. Now, when we kind of come across this idea of salvation, maybe I hope this is maybe expanding your view of what salvation is about here a little bit. Because um, it requires us to really have a thick understanding of what's going on. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a book that I remember reading a long time ago. And the author, he, he's, a, he's a, a pastor, and he talks about uh, someone who comes to him who is a parishioner of his and who kind of has an issue. He, he just became a Christian, but he kind of has a problem that he needs help working through. Okay, and, and here, here's what um, the pastor, a guy named N.T. Wright, recounts that this person asked him. Was he basically, this is the person, he, he called, his name is James in the book, was he basically going to be hanging around for a few decades, waiting to die and go to heaven, and in the meantime, using some of his spare time to persuade other people to do the same? Was that really it? Isn't there anything else that happens after you believe and before you finally die and go to heaven? Okay, this kind of in-between space between belief initially where we believe our salvation is secure before God and then the long interim time between that point and when we actually die and we experience the fruit of what we talk about as, being, as salvation as being sometimes. So essentially the question is this, is the gospel just about a final destination and in the meantime, we're just sort of twiddling our thumbs or maybe sometimes really white-knuckling it, trying to hold on for dear life just to make sure we don't lose it, but really that's about all that's going on. Or does it affect us in the in-between time as well? And I think for Paul, the answer to that second question um, is, you betcha, right? For sure, this has a huge impact on our lives in the present as well, in addition to the future, okay? I'm not trying to, you know, screen out what God will do in the future for us, but I'm saying that there is, and Paul is saying there's something that goes on in the present that's a part of this as well. And at, and at Res City, we really do believe this is true. And so all of our 
all the stuff we do on Sunday mornings, whether it's preaching or worship or uh, kids' ministry or gathering downstairs after service to eat some eat way too many donuts that we've been given, just like we have every single Sunday. Uh, we really want to, to form you to think about salvation as something that is, is thick and inf- impacts us in the present and also in the future. Okay? We want you to care about both of those things. And, and, and sometimes, you know, history has been described as uh, falling off one side of a horse, getting back on and falling off the other side. Right? Just kind of this constant state of, of reaction to an opposite position. I think for us at Red City, we want to just stay on the horse. Okay? That's our goal, is to sort of straddle both of these things and figure out how they work together and, and how um, we, you know, we, we, we want to, to, to find some, some sort of uh, life and hope in both of those things. Because okay? really, all of our Christian life is in this sort of in-between time. Right? Where, we're, where we believe something is going to be true about us in the future and is true about us in the moment, but also called to live a certain way in the midst of that. Prayerfully, in community, right, with deep thought and, and with the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, there's so much to that. Right? We can't cover everything that, that is involved in that in one sermon. So let's take it in small chunks. Okay? Let's just go what, to what Paul talks about here in this passage. So what does Paul say here about what it looks like to work salvation out? So let's just move ahead to verse 14. He says, Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life then on the day of Christ's return. I will be proud. Um, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. So what will make proud of his work, his specific work in starting this community of the Philippian church is, is if they adopt a posture toward the world that reflects that they care about it, just like God does, that they live just like the Jesus that they claim to believe in the present, while also finding the fruit of that coming upon them in the future someday, with no grumbling or complaining or arguing. Now, just think about that. Why would that that be important? Why would he specifically talk about grumbling? I don't know if you've ever asked a friend for help doing something, or maybe a spouse, or or, or a, 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 a co-worker or something, and they just go, oh, fine, I'll help you out. But, you know, I have a bunch of other stuff that I would much rather be doing right now, and I hope this doesn't take too long. You're just like, just forget about it, right? That's kind of your response to them. Just whatever, I'll find someone else. I'd rather do it myself, okay? And it's because of the posture that they're, that they're giving towards you, right? What is the posture that's being communicated when someone grumbles or argues or complains about something? It's that they don't really care. They don't really want to be a part of the thing that you're doing. And, or, or, or in fact, they despise it, perhaps, Okay? And I think Paul wants this to not be the posture of the Philippians. Because in Paul's view, and he wants the Philippians to strongly believe this, the world needs the work of God to manifest in it now. And really, you know, this is what like, the Lord's prayer is about, right? We pray that, God, that, that heaven, that God's will on earth would be done just like it is in heaven. That we ask for God's kingdom to come now in the present time as well. Okay, we be, if we really believe that stuff that we pray, and we pray that once a month here as a church, right? As a sort of, you know, we're saying we believe this. Then we think that the world needs this to come now. We think the world is a better place when God's space starts to overlap with it more and more in the present as much as is possible in this sort of weird in-between time. Okay? We can't wait for heaven because we need its presence. 
And the reason for Paul is that the present time is, is warped, it's crooked, it's, it's perverse. Those are the language he uses here in different translations. Now, we're thinking about crooked. I want you to think of like a road that doesn't lead to the destination that you think it does, right? That's a, a, you know, it looks like it's heading one direction, but really it's sort of veering off to the side and doesn't actually get you to the place that it's supposed to be taking you. Okay? And think about, think about how often this has happened maybe in your life, or if, you're, if you like history like I do, if you look at movements in human history, how often they claim to, you know, or we think we're leading ourselves towards happiness or peace or, or flourishing to a place where there are no regrets whatsoever, or, or maybe it's true justice, fairness, equality, you know, rest, full restitution of wrongs in the world. Okay, how often have we actually found ourselves getting to that place? right, to support maybe all of our optimism that we're on the right path, that it is taking us there, how often has it actually ended up that way? True, maybe we're getting closer to the destination, but it's not taking us fully, in, you know, to where it's promising to take us. And, 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 and so we bounce back and forth from crooked road to crooked road a lot of times, okay? You know, thinking this road's not taking me there, I'm going to jump onto this road, and this will be the one to take me there. Finding out that, yeah, maybe this one gets me a little bit closer, but it in and of itself does not take me quite to the destination I'm hoping that it does. And we love to build these sort of fantasy words where we think, well, we'll just eventually find the right path someday to get us there on our own, and it'll take us to this destination we've been longing for. For Paul here, he, 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 he's saying this is not possible. This sort, of, um, this sort of fantasy world that we put ourselves in sometimes uh, it is not possible. And what we need to sort of show to us that the paths that we often take are crooked is a light, okay? And that's what he talks about the church itself, the Philippians themselves being, okay? He wants a church that understands that it in itself is a light. Now, this is not imagery that Paul necessarily is coming up with. It's actually rooted in, in, ba- in a very sort of deep uh, tradition within the Bible itself of this imagery of, of a people themselves being a light that sort of resonates out to a world that needs it, um, a path that leads them to the destination they're looking uh, to go to. So whether it's in the book of Isaiah we find this show up, or Jesus himself in Matthew 5 where he talks about you are a city on a hill, right? This, this light in a dark place. That is the sort of idea that's, that's being talked about there. And this sort of shows that the paths themselves are crooked, right? It's a welcoming uh, presence in a place that really needs it. And what this looks like in practice is self-evidently wise, intentional, consistent, grace-filled, loving, and welcoming, welcoming lives of those who understand that they themselves have to find this light and now are representatives of it to the rest of the world, Okay. They, they, they don't want to hide it under a blanket, but they want other people to see that shining out of their lives and how they live, okay? Not themselves living crooked or hypocritical, but instead living consistently, living, with, living a consistent lifestyle that in all situations, not taking breaks, okay? Figuring out in every phase of my life, what does it look like for me to live this out? And when this is lived out, the church is what God intends for it to be, and, and, and that's this. And, and I saw this, um, you know, recently uh, at, at a house I was at, and it was this, uh, a little, uh, one of those, you know, one of those things you find in Target and you throw it in your house. It was a little, uh, it, was, it was a little uh, sign, it was, and it said beach, and it had like a definition of the beach, um, a free sample of heaven. 
And it got me thinking about how, you know, we often do use that language of heaven on earth to describe something that is full of pleasure, that is very pleasing to us, and we think this is so good, it must be from another place, okay? It must not be a part of the rest of the world that is stressful, that is difficult. And when I, when I go to the beach or when I eat chocolate or whatever it is that you're sort of comparing to heaven, you feel like I'm experiencing something that pulls me out of the reality that I'm living in. We use that language of sort of heaven on earth to describe that. And I think, I, you know, I love that language but I also think we sort of misunderstand what, what biblically, what heaven on earth is supposed to be. Because heaven on earth in the Bible is supposed to not be something we eat or a place we go necessarily, but a people, okay? The church is, and the lives of those within it lived out consistently is supposed to be heaven on earth, okay? That's the goal of what God's work is. That's what the goal of what Jesus talks about in the Lord's Prayer, where he says, um, you know, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom come on earth. Is the church living this out is supposed to be a preview. Now, don't, we'll talk next week about living too much into that, okay? So don't, I don't want you to get it mixed up in your head of, of over-emphasizing uh, this idea. But still, the church is supposed to be a preview or a taste of what God is doing and what God will do someday when he comes back and restores all things. Now, think about that, right? Th- think about what that means, okay? I-, I think we as a church, like we, we recognize, I-, I think, we do this well. We have good community. I think we're a very, we are an intentional community. We, we love each other. I think people see this, we- the service, the love, the intentionality that we have among ourselves. And I think we can look at a lot of different reasons for that, right? Um, maybe we're all such great people. It just happens naturally, okay? I think we need to take seriously that when we find that in a church setting, that that's a spiritual thing that's taking place, okay? It, it, is, it, is, a, it is an example of God's work in our midst that we need to take really seriously, okay? As something we can't just find anywhere but has to be found in the midst of a group of people, and when we take that seriously, that it, that it is something spiritual that's going on in our midst, then we start to be able to actually function like lights in the world, okay? If we don't recognize that it's something spiritual, then we think of it as something that we just get to use for our benefit, something that we're glad that we're a part of, and, you know, we'll, we'll take advantage of it while we're in the midst of it. But when we recognize that it is something spiritual, that it's something that God is doing in our midst, then that puts a certain sort of level of we've got to do more than just enjoy it. We've got, to, we've got to be willing to be ambassadors of this. We have to posture this to invite other people into an experience in the rest of the world, okay? And so, living light as a posture. Now, listen, we talked earlier about bad postures, right? And how that can really mess with our body. And, and how, you know, you can maybe have good posture one moment, and then get bored of it, like I do a lot of times, and revert back to bad posture, okay? Posture is, is like that, and it's the same for us as well. So what are some postures that can sort of stunt the growth of what Paul is talking about here? Well, I have a couple of them I want to talk about today. Um, postures of fear or consumption, okay? Postures of fear and consumption. Let me, let me break down both of these. First of all, I want to talk about fear. Now, Julie has a friend from high school and um, I've heard, I, I, I was not, uh, you know, here during this, but I've heard this story many times. And he got roped into volunteering at, like, a haunted house one Halloween. This is the high school kid. He, 
I don't, I don't know the exact, you know, specifics of how he got roped into doing it, but it wasn't something he necessarily was excited to do. And he was actually scared already. Just being in this haunted house, he himself was a little spooked by all of the stuff that you put up in a haunted house. And some kid thought it would be fun to walk through the haunted house and try to scare the workers working in this haunted house. So Julie's friend is already a little spooked. He doesn't really want to be there. And now someone is trying to come and scare him. And so this person walks in. They, they scare him. And he punches him. Just like knee-jerk reaction. He doesn't think about it all. He just throws a punch at the person and hits him in the face and, and, and knocks him over. And actually, there are videos on YouTube of this too. It's really funny. Just, just YouTube search like scared and punch. And I think the first thing that comes up is, is, is something like that. Now, when you're afraid, this thing just goes to show when you're afraid, your reaction to things around you changes pretty dramatically, right? You, you, you usually don't have a plan. You're not thinking clearly. And you usually, you're, you feel kind of intense and your, your gut reaction is a lot of times hostility back towards the stimuli outside of you, okay? You have a hostile posture when you're afraid. And I think unfortunately for us as a church, a sort of posture of fear has really dominated how we react to the world around us. Okay, I think we find that often time. And so instead of having integrity and love flowing out of us, as we're called to do, we off, we, you know, because we're motivated by fear of the culture around us, we have uh, um, hostility flowing back out of it. And, and Kristen Cobes Demez, I, I, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, she's a historian at Calvin University, and um, she writes in a book called Jesus and John Wayne about this sort of approach by Christians in the last few decades. So she says, during the Cold War, the communist menace seemed to require a militant response. But when that threat had been vanquished, conservative evangelicals promptly declared a new war, a culture war, demanding similar militancy. Evangelical militancy cannot be seen simply as a response to fearful times. For conservative white evangelicals, a militant faith required an ever-present sense of threat. Now, evangelical fears were real, Yet these fears were not simply a natural response to changing times. For decades, leaders had worked to stoke them. Okay, so this was kind of the dominant posture in the evangelical church for a long time towards the rest of culture. We need to fear it. We're used to sort of having a thread out there that we need to sort of conform our, uh, our, our, our action in the world to, and we're going to keep doing this as the world changes around us. And that fear led to a word that we, you know, uh, hear all the time to describe a lot of times what we're seeing in our culture right now, a culture war, right? A war that's taking place, uh, an ideological civil war between two groups of people that really don't like each other and are scared to death of each other. And there's a lot of polling around the fear that people on both sides of the culture war have towards one another. So fear is really at the heart of all of it. And um, it, it looks around, it sees and fears, and sometimes invents crookedness or perversity, some of the stuff that Paul talks about here. But it responds in total hostility instead of love, instead of this posture that Paul talks about here. And it, and it amounts to sometimes a lot of our own crookedness and perversity, right, that we take on that we think is okay because it's all in service of sort of responding against the threat. And it causes us to do things like hitch our wagons to, to politicians who can save us from the scary culture. We see them as our heroes, perhaps. Instead of trusting God and choosing to live as lights, no matter what's going on around us, acknowledging the work of God in our midst, you know, looking at around us and, and, and responding in a sense of reverence to what God is doing around us. 
And this is us, what, what we're doing if we do this is we're, we have this light, but we're using it to try to burn people around us. We're trying to start fires around us with this light, as opposed to using it as a welcoming thing that kind of comes in. Now, the opposite of fear, and this is another reaction we often see uh, from Christians to culture around us, is uncritical consumption. Again, that becomes a posture we have. And Andy Crouch, this guy I mentioned earlier who kind of, you know, coined the language of posture, he says, if anything, when I'm among evangelical Christians, I find that they seem to be more avidly consuming the latest offerings of commercial culture than many of my non-Christian neighbors. They are content to be just like their fellow Americans, or perhaps driven by a lingering sense of shame at their uncool Christian forebears, right, the ones who were very hostile to society around them, they just want to be slightly more like their fellow Americans than anyone else, okay? So kind of the dominant is like, we're cool, see, we, we eat all the same stuff as you do, we take it all in, we don't even think about it, that's how cool we are, right? I think that posture can come to dominate us as well. And this is just sort of taking what is force-fed to us by culture and accepting it without having any thought about what we're putting into ourselves. All for, as a, as a sort of a knee-jerk counter-reaction to what we've seen come before us. Okay? This is us saying, oh, sorry, our light, is our light a little bright for you? Here, we'll just turn it off. Okay? Sorry for, sorry for that bugging you. You know, we, we apologize. We'll put it away so you don't have to see it anymore. Okay? This is also what Paul is against. And I think this is key, okay? This is really key for us to recognize as we think about this. Both of these postures, they seem very opposite and very different, but they both come from the idea that salvation is just about a future destination, okay? That doesn't really have any sort of impact on us now. And what both of them are really trying to sort of grab for us in the present time is just a level, level of comfort, okay? Oh, culture's changing, you know, may, might not like me, well, I'm going to fight back and secure, you know, my own comfort so they can't do anything to take that away from me as it changes. Or, oh, you know, people don't like us, well, let's just try to be just like them in every way. Both of them are molded by comfort in the present time. And like I said, ultimately what they're thinking about is just, you know, really they're functionally living as if all that really matters is something that might happen to us someday in the future. And it has no bearing on us in the present now. Now, in contrast, there are plenty of examples of the church not doing this, really taking seriously what God is doing in their midst. And we're actually doing a church history class right now uh, that we've been doing on Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. We did our second one today. We'll do a third one next week if you want to come in and, uh, you know, catch up on uh, 300 years of Christian history. Um, you're welcome to do that. Um, but one of the things we talked about last week is how Christians lived in the midst of an epidemic. And not just one epidemic, but many epidemics that took place in the ancient world. I think that's helpful because, you know, we just, you know, lived through our own epidemic, right? And so, like, realizing that Christians have lived in, you know, situations similar to the ones that we live in today is helpful for us to learn how they reacted in their own time and, and place. And so, um, Dionysus, he's, he's a, a Christian bishop in, in um, 260. He writes in an Easter letter that he, he believed and that other Christians around him believed that Christians saw this sort of epidemic in the world as a chance to really, truly live out their call. Even though many Christians, by living this out, actually themselves contracted these plagues and died from it, they actually saw it as themselves saving other people and living a really Christ-like vocation in the midst of that, being a total light to the world around them, even if it meant their own death. And this is where the hope of what God will do in the future for us someday really does matter, 
because it doesn't make us fear how we live in the present, but it still uh, puts a strong desire in us to live consistently with Christ-like values, you know, where, where we're at in the present. And so the Christians live this out. And so while a lot of people would flee the city to get away from the plague, if you could, if you had a, a nice house in the countryside or a lake cabin, everyone would flee the city to get away from it. But the Christians would stay, or someone even come into the city to really try to care for the people in it who were suffering from these plagues. And in the ancient world, um, you know, a little bit of basic hygiene would go a long way, okay? And the Christians were willing to do that to help people, uh, uh, help people stay alive. And so fear would have said, oh, let them die. And consumption would have, would have fled. Com- they, both of these would have been uh, motivated by comfort. But instead, as the Christians saw hell all around them, breaking out in the form of this pandemic, they wanted to live heaven in their midst through the light that had been given to them, living that out consistently. And we know that the church actually grew because of this. Okay, there are a lot, of, we don't need to get into it now, the reasons for it, but the church actually grew because of this, okay? Because people around them couldn't believe what they were seeing as the church lived as a light. And this ultimately is a posture of welcome. And this is what I want to say, uh, this is what kind of want to, how I, I want us to see what Paul says here. Living a certain posture out in the world, a posture of welcome, okay? And this really does matter because we're supposed to not just live this on Sunday mornings, or on a certain day of the week. Posture, if you're really going to get the benefit of it, has got to be a constant state of it. So we as Christians have to live in a constant state of welcome to the world around us. Now that requires us to, you know, to actually, you know, not live in fear, to push away, or to consume, but to welcome it. And that, that, that requires us to live a certain way at all times, but it also requires us to view ourselves in a certain way, as constantly, you know, feeling like we're representatives or ambassadors of something that we're welcoming people into. We can't live out a posture of welcome if we don't see ourselves as fundamentally welcoming them into something. And we need to let that impact us. Ambassadors of the destination, self-evidently attractive in how we live and treat others because we do it like Jesus. Living out grace, even when we ourselves are poorly treated. Okay? And having a posture of earnestly welcoming people into the space that God is creating and will create someday through His Son, Jesus, and the work of the Spirit. Now, I want, I want to pause on two things here as we kind of close the sermon um, uh, for what welcome looks like. There are two things I think that are essential for us. First of all, welcome includes all of us. This is not a solitary game. This is not golf, okay? This is football, this is something we all do together, where we need each other to actually accomplish the goal. You know how golf is a game, you play all by yourself, maybe your caddy helps you out, but you're the one that's doing all the work. In football, no one person makes anything happen, okay? Really good players can do a lot to move the ball down the field or to stop the other team from moving the ball down the field, but if someone makes a mistake in there somewhere, it doesn't really matter how strong the efforts of, uh, of some of the really good players um, have. And, and we, we've talked about this a lot, I think, in other points of this book in Philippians. Uh, whether it was a few weeks ago we talked about koinonia, or last week when Miles talked about radical unity, that applies to this posture of welcome as well. There can't be a what is sometimes called in sports a studs and scrubs strategy, Strategy, okay? Sometimes you, you see where a team puts together a group of a couple of all-stars, and then everybody else is just kind of 
their warm bodies that are feeling it out, and they're expecting the stars to do all the work for them. Okay, the work of welcoming is not a studs and scrubs strategy. It is one that includes all of us, and we all need to be working in. Because we're all the church, okay? The church is not just a few, it's not just a few leaders. It is every person who is a part of our midst, not just at Res City, but in the, in the world itself, okay? It requires all of us to commit to it. It can't just be the pastors or the leaders of a church or people who have gifts around those things, who enjoy welcoming, Right? And there certainly are people who have gifts and who enjoy doing it, and we should set them free and support them in it, but it doesn't mean we all get off the hook. It means it's something we all have to take part in. No one gets to hang out on the sidelines when it comes to welcoming. And the second thing I want to say is we all have to take ownership of it. Okay? Like I said before, if we really truly believe that God is doing something in our midst that we're celebrating, and it's not just, you know, Uh, the confluence of some good friendships coming together, but it's something we believe God is at work in, we have to take that seriously and believe there might be a purpose for it that is bigger than us, which requires that we all go and take ownership of it. Now, welcome takes on many forms, okay? Um, And it takes really a lifetime to discern the different forms, especially as we move through different seasons of life. Welcome in our lives will look different when we're in college, when we are, you know, single, when we are, um, you know, starting our new job. It looks different when you get married, when you have kids, but it's something that stays consistent through all those stages of life. And I think sometimes we take changing seasons to think, I don't have to worry about this welcome thing now, or ownership anymore, or commitment, you know, to, to the mission that God has put on us. No, it just looks different in those different spaces. And that's what Paul means when he says, let's work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let's continue to think and process through what this looks like together. Creating a taste of heaven in what we do because heaven itself is literally being pulled into the present by the work of the Holy Spirit. So it could be at work as you create and contribute to a culture, trying to make that culture the feel, people feel the blessing as you bring in what you believe, how you believe Christ would be interacting in this. People feel the effect of that, okay? Uh, Maybe it means in what we create in our work, something that showcases light, whether we're janitors or we're CEOs or somewhere in between that, okay? Whether we create environments through our work or we create products through our work, whether we create experiences or devices, we can still put into that work uh, uh, something of welcome, something of, uh, of, uh, uh, that we know is coming from another place that we learn in the church. Whether Maybe it could be creating in our leisure with friends, being a bridge builder, right? Showing what reconciliation can look like because we understand it because we've been reconciled back to God. We've seen it firsthand what reconciliation looks like or we've practiced it in our church community, reconciling ourselves to one another, living that out in other spaces that we might go to, being a loving presence, sharing about the hope in us through our words and our deeds. And then finally, as part of a community that we're at as Res City, whether it's welcoming people into what we have going on here on a Sunday morning or in community groups or in other events that we have, we have going on as a church, kind of constantly bringing in that posture of welcome into all that stuff. It could mean inviting friends. It could mean, you know, meeting a new person there and giving them your full attention. You know, not just choosing to spend the time talking to someone you already know, but getting to know someone else to whom it might really make a huge difference to them if you show them you care, right? Again, postures. Postures matter here. 
And all the while, we're working out together, we're doing it together, and we're encouraging each other through the work of the Holy Spirit, through the work of God himself in our midst. Let's pray here, and then we'll enter a time of communion and worship. God, we thank you that you look at a world that is, has many crooked paths, Lord, that, that claim to lead in some direction, but don't lead there. They're off kilter. They're not leading to the destination that they say they are. And you bring the light of your gospel into the world so that we may see that those paths are crooked and well, be welcomed by you, by your son Jesus, to the beacon of the gospel. And we thank you that we get the privilege of ourselves getting to live that light out to those around us. I pray that we would, we would take that seriously. We would ask ourselves what it means to work out our salvation with reverence, with awe, with fear and trembling towards you and the work that you're doing in our midst, God. Help us to, to have that mindset of posture of welcome as opposed to fear or consumption or any other posture, God. Help us to be lights that welcome people into the work that you're doing in the world and welcome them into what you will do in the present or in the future someday when you make all things new through the return of your son. God, we, we await that time. God, we can't wait for that time, but help us to live it well in the present here as well. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.